If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1655, the younger cardinals took to playing pranks on the older ones, and one elderly cardinal died of pneumonia reputedly after he was left lying on a cold floor after being frightened by a young cardinal dressed as a ghost. That was Stella Fletcher discussing papal conclaves of the past. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. And we've now set up a page on our website with all the details of our many digital formats, including the price, the content and the availability. Head to historyextra.com forward slash digital for that. A few days ago, Pope Benedict XVI became the first pontiff for 600 years to voluntarily resign the papacy. To mark that fact, and in a change from the scheduled programme, we're dedicating this episode to the history of papal conclaves. Our section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, has been speaking with historian Stella Fletcher to find out a bit more about the process of papal elections and to hear some fascinating and unusual tales from conclaves past. So how were popes elected before conclaves? Initially, as we hear in histories of the early church, bishops, including the Bishop of Rome, were elected by acclamation. The faithful cried out, we want so-and-so to be our bishop, he is a great and holy man. And there was indeed a case of this as late on as the 8th century in Rome, when during the funeral of Pope Gregory II, the Roman crowd hoisted up the man that they wanted to be the next pope. Uh, He took the name of Gregory III. They acclaimed him as pope. That was what the Romans wanted. Plenty of bread and circuses, plenty of shows. Um, But of course, as the church became wealthier Other people, particularly the emperors, wanted a say in who should be pope. They wanted to be new Constantines, the first emperor to get involved with church affairs. First, it was the emperors in Constantinople. Then it was the Holy Roman emperors in Germany. They each wanted a say. But equally, the Romans themselves were used to choosing popes. And rather than it being left to 
the people, uh, the Roman nobles, uh, for, for some centuries, dominated um, the choice of popes, the papal elections. It was only in the 11th and 12th centuries when canon lawyers were codifying everything in sight that papal elections ceased to be unregulated bids for power by Rome's noble families. It's in the 11th century that we first find strict rules uh, dictating that cardinals, in this case cardinal bishops, that is the bishops of the sees uh, geographically around Rome, were responsible for identifying a candidate from among the Roman clergy. And then the uh, other people were to, to approve their choice. And in the 12th century, we first hear the term College of Cardinals or Sacred College. This consisted of those bishops, uh, like um, the Bishop of Albano, the Bishop of Palestrina, the places around Rome. And priests, cardinal priests from the parish churches of Rome and cardinal deacons, the men responsible for distributing uh, food to the poor in the city. They together formed a college and elected the, uh, the next pope. Um, so we find, for instance, in 1179 at the Third Lateran Council, a formal laying out of the rules that the sacred college of cardinals should be the exclusive electors of popes and that two-thirds of their number had to agree on a particular candidate for an election to be valid. That was later clarified as two-thirds plus one to counter the possibility that the cardinal might have voted for himself. Though there was, of course, no ban on that. And uh, so all that happened before there was ever any conclave as such. Okay, so when did they become the preferred procedure? In the 13th century. And it began with, probably in about in 1216, with uh, the election of Honorius III at Perugia. But we don't have very much information on that. We've got more uh, later in the century. In 1241, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II was not in Germany, but at Grotta just south of Rome, with his army menacing the city. And it was important to have an election quickly to give Rome a leader. And so the senator, the civil governor of Rome, locked the cardinals in a fortress called the Septizonium, in order to concentrate their minds and get them to make a swift decision. So he locked them in with a key, cum clave, with a key. So that, I suppose, could be regarded as the first detailed account of a conclave that we have, and it was pretty impromptu. Then the next development follows later in the 13th century, when you come to the years 1268 to 71. And that brought the longest papal interregnum, two years and nine months without a pope. There was deadlock, basically due to there being pro and anti-French parties. That you will find is a recurring feature in papal elections. Not these days, but it used to be. And after 18 months of deadlock, the roof of the Cardinal's palace was removed. Would they please make a decision then? No, they didn't. A temporary roof was put on and they carried on in deadlock. Eventually, 
they did choose someone, a man who was not even present, a man who was a legate to the Crusaders in the, in the uh, Near East. And he was not a cardinal, which reminds us that they're, not, they're under no obligation, or generally have been under no obligation, to elect one of their own. Now, this man duly came back from the Crusades. He took the name of Gregory X, and in the light of the circumstances in which he had been elected, he introduced formal procedures. These rules included the fact that a conclave should begin 10 days after the Pope's death. On the 10th day, the cardinals should enter the conclave, each taking with them one attendant who was known as a conclavist. Or if the cardinal happened to be old or sick, he could take in another attendant for medical reasons. Latecomers could be admitted. Um, sick cardinals could leave and be readmitted. And the regulations included that they should sleep in a dormitory without partitions. Curtains between beds were not introduced until the 14th century. Oh, they were getting soft in the 14th century. You can see that. And food was sent into the conclave through a turnstile. I mean, they, they had no cooking facilities inside this conclave. Their servants outside each made their own um, meals and put them on the turnstile, rather like, you know, they, these unwanted babies got put on those and, uh, uh, and they're all moved around and then they're inside the building. Um, so the food went in that way. And if after a few days the cardinals hadn't made a decision, the amount of food that they were allowed was reduced. And uh, so by the end of the 13th century, there were very strict rules about how these things should take place. But there was actually no obligation to make the cardinals observe them. And for a few of the remaining 13th century conclaves, they just ignored them. However, from 1294 onwards, they have been um, much, much better behaved in that way, much more orderly and observed those rules and later amendments to those rules. And had the conclaves always been held in the Sistine Chapel? No, no, because if you think back to, say, the 13th century, which I've just been talking about, the popes were on the move a lot. Rome was extremely unhealthy. Um, there was plague. I've done an interesting survey of papal deaths. Obviously, that's not topical this time because we've got this resignation. But more popes have died in August than in any other month because of the plague. And lots of popes have also died in September, which is another plague month. Uh, February is also a uh, watch out for that as well. That's when the influenza reaches Rome. And um, uh, so... The popes got out of Rome. They went to places like Perugia and Viterbo. And wherever the pope happened to die, that was where the conclave took place because the cardinals were with him. They'd all retreated from the city of Rome. So in the 13th century, they were voting in Perugia, Viterbo, Arezzo. In the 14th century, of course, when the papacy was based in Avignon, they voted there. Uh, then in the 15th century, they were generally back in Rome, but they didn't, to start off with, settle in the Vatican. There were a couple of conclaves in the Dominican house of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. Um, and then from 1455 onwards, the Vatican has been used for all but half a dozen conclaves. 
the first one to be held in the Sistine Chapel was the first one that could be. The Sistine Chapel was, of course, built by Pope Sixtus IV in the 1470s and early 80s. And after he died in 1484, the conclave was held there. Suddenly, very early on in the history of the Sistine Chapel, certain paintings on the walls became considered lucky. If a cardinal's cell, and they all had wooden cells at this stage in the chapel, if his cell was placed under a particular painting, certainly Perugino's Christ giving the keys to St. Peter, that was thought to be terrifically significant. But in due course, and particularly in the 16th century, these people were not just taking in one conclavist, they seem to have been taking in about seven. And in 1549 to 50, over 400 people were in the enclosure. That was a ridiculous figure. Um, in the modern period, the Sistine Chapel has tended to be used for voting and Dormitories have been set up in other halls throughout the Vatican Palace. It's different again now. The most recent conclave to be held anywhere outside Rome was in Venice in 1799 to 1800. Now, the previous Pope, Pius VI, had died in exile at Valence in August 1799, and he wrote instructions uh, for electing his successor in emergency conditions. And you have to admit that for the papacy, the period um, during and after the French Revolution certainly counted as an emergency. Um, and according to these rules, the most senior cardinal was to convene a conclave in the location of his choice. As it happened, the largest group of, con of cardinals, including Henry Benedict, the Cardinal of York, had sought refuge in Venice. So 34 of them met there in the monastery of San Giorgio Maggiore uh, for a 14-week conclave. And then in the 19th century, there were a few conclaves in another papal palace in Rome, the Quirinale, which is now the palace of the President of the Republic of Italy. Um, but of course, the Italian state, first the Kingdom of Italy before it became a republic, the Italian state existed from 1870, and the Quirinale became the palace of the kings of Italy, and the Pope was the prisoner in the Vatican. And from then onwards, all the conclaves have indeed taken place in the Vatican with the voting in the Sistine Chapel. And how long do conclaves usually last for? How long is a piece of string, one might say? Um, the shortest conclave that I've come across is back in 1276. There were just 10 voters. They had one ballot. It took one hour. That is efficient. Why all this fuss, you might ask? Now, modern modernists, modern historians, they often say, ah, the shortest conclave was that of 1939, which elected Eugenio Pacelli. There was just three ballots. But I work in the Renaissance period, so I'm more familiar with the conclaves of 1503 and the election of Julius II lasted less than 10 hours. So for the Renaissance period, that's the shortest. But as I say, you could go back even further to 1276. That's at the short end.
The longer end, well, of course, we've heard about the longest papal interregnum, two years and nine months. But what about the longest period when they, I suppose, in the more modern centuries, when they were locked up and unable to get out? It got really bad in the 17th century Um it went on for months. The first two weeks were just a process of going through, finding out who people were, working out who was papabile, who was likely to be elected. They had ballots or scrutinies in which they tried the chances of each candidate, see if they could get a two-thirds majority. But by the 17th century, the College of Cardinals was really rather large. And the more cardinals there were, the more options they had. But I think it got even worse in the 18th century, when a two-month conclave was a reasonably concise affair. And Benedict the Fourteenth was elected after six months and 255 ballots. The last of those long conclaves was in 1830 to 31 at 50 days. Since then, the longest they've been is four days. So I think that this time we'll get a result pretty quickly. And, and did uh, political allegiances and nationalities play a part in voting? Definitely. I've indicated that one of those early conclaves involved deadlock between a pro and anti-French faction. It didn't necessarily mean that they were uh, French cardinals or non-French cardinals, but basically those who were perhaps in the pay of the King of France. But I think if you want to look for these political allegiances at their strongest, you need to look at each of the centuries from the 16th to the early 20th. In the 16th century, you've got the Italian Wars, when the peninsula was being fought over by the French House of Valois and the Habsburgs. And their conflict throughout the peninsula was played out in miniature in some of the conclaves. Only some of them, because during the French, uh, well, later in the 16th century, you've got the French Wars of Religion and the French had other things on their minds. Um, but a Good example from the mid-16th century of this hostility is the conclave of 1549 to 50. That lasted 72 days and was a bit of an epic struggle. This was the conclave in which the imperial or Habsburg candidate was the English cardinal Reginald Pole. As you remember, he was a kinsman of the, the uh, Tudor monarchs. And... Um, so, so, and the Mary Tudor was, of course, married to Charles V's son. So you can see how that all fits together nicely. Now, in the first scrutiny, the first ballot, Pole received 21 votes out of the 28 he needed to win. Now, in those sort of circumstances, often voters uh, looked at the figures and thought, OK, well, I'll just go along with that. And there was a process of accession when it looked like that one candidate was going to win. However, he was the imperialist candidate and the French didn't like it. But the French cardinals hadn't arrived when the voting started. The rules allowed latecomers to be admitted, as we've heard. So the French ambassador played for time and um, he, he, he didn't, he, whatever methods he used, 
he prevented Pole from being elected. And bit by bit, the French cardinals began to arrive. The imperialists had got as far as preparing the papal robes for Reginald Pole. And uh, so they thought he, it was a dead cert. However, the French cardinals began to arrive, and at that point, victory for Pole receded. Um, if we move on into the 17th century, um, the French again matter terrifically. By that stage, of course, they're the dominant power in Europe. So it's not so much of a conflict as just getting permission from France. In 1655, for example, the conclave was kept on hold for six weeks while they waited to hear from Mazarin in France. And in 1676, Benedetto Odescalchi, a cardinal who duly became Innocent XI, was not elected until the green light came from Louis XIV. Then in the 18th century, it changes a bit again because the Bourbons not only ruled France, but also ruled in Iberia as well after the War of the Spanish Succession confirmed their position there. And the counterweight to the Bourbon power was therefore the Habsburg Emperor in Vienna. And what they did, in, mostly in the 18th century, was to use vetoes. They assumed that they could veto a particular candidate. And the, the French and the Habsburgs were doing this in a tit-for-tat fashion. Um, they say, OK, well, there's one particular candidate we don't want. So that man was excluded. Ah, but if the French did that, then the Habsburgs wanted to do it as well. I suppose never was Bourbon intervention more keenly felt than in the conclave of 1769. And that was a single issue conclave, if ever there was one. What the Bourbons wanted was the suppression of the Jesuits. And they would only agree to a pope being elected if he agreed to suppress the Jesuits. Well, they got the pope they wanted, um, Giovanni Vincenzo Ganganelli, and he duly became Clement XIV and suppressed the Jesuits in 1773. Moving on to the 19th century, I could give you the example of the Austrian minister Metternich. In one conclave, he wanted a moderate sort of pontiff, and he got one, Pius VIII. In the next conclave, Metternich wanted an absolutist-minded pope, and he was equally successful with Gregory XVI, the last monk to become a pope. Now, the whole story changed again once the Kingdom of Italy came into being after the period known as the Risorgimento, and from that point onwards, the pope became the prisoner in the Vatican. The first conclave to take place after the Kingdom of Italy was formed was that of 1878. And there was a great worry. Would this new secular power seek to impose its candidate on the church? Now, Cardinal Manning, the Archbishop of Westminster, was a good friend of Gladstone. And Manning wanted the British government which was not known as, as a Catholic power, you have to admit. But Manning wanted the British government to allow the conclave to take place on the island of Malta. But other people feared that uh, this would get them back into the, uh, the situation like the Avignon papacy, and the papacy would become the plaything of one particular secular power, in that case, Britain, which happened to be top nation at that point. 
Now, by the end of the 19th century, this sort of secular intervention was thought to be passé. But there was one last example of it. In 1903, the Emperor Franz Joseph used the Austrian veto for the very last time. He used it against Cardinal Rampolla, and we do know that it had an effect. Rampolla led during the first two days of the conclave. Ballot by ballot, he increased his votes, which rose to 31 out of the 42 votes he needed to win. At that point, the Austrian veto was announced and Rampolla's fortunes were reversed. And in the final ballot, Cardinal Sarto gained 50 votes and Rampolla had been reduced to just 10. That was the very last example of a secular power getting involved. And had there been any deaths during a conclave before? Plenty, particularly during those longer conclaves. Now, hopefully this time, when we'll be going for, you know, a couple of days, uh, I think they might survive. But when you're looking at those two-year interregna, things like that, obviously there were deaths. I've got a case in 1241 of a cardinal who was thought to be dead and put in a casket before he actually was dead. And then in, in also in the 13th century, in 1287 to 8, that was a conclave more afflicted by sickness than any other. Malaria claimed the lives of six cardinals and many others were seriously ill. Uh, but as we come forward... There are some strange cases. Take, for instance, 1655. We've heard about that already, I think, with, in, in other contexts. But it's one of those long 17th century conclaves when it's all drawn out and they, they can only have uh, one or two ballots a day, maximum. So there's a lot of hanging around. There were also a lot of younger cardinals. It's not like these days when they're in their 70s and they can't vote in their 80s now. But there were younger cardinals who'd been promoted by their uncles and so on and so forth. And in 1655, the younger cardinals took to playing pranks on the older ones. And one elderly cardinal died of pneumonia reputedly after he was left lying on a cold floor after being frightened by a young cardinal dressed as a ghost. And then in, in, in 1730, there's a case of a cardinal who died of shock when he was told as a joke that he had just been elected. So uh, I think that's probably the most recent one. And how were security issues handled in the past as well? Indifferently well. Um, I'd say that the worst conclave in terms of security issues was one that we've already talked about, 1549 to 50, the Reginald Pole conclave. Now, We've also mentioned the number of people involved. There were about 400 people in the enclosure. You try keeping 400 people under control. You try stopping them talking, including to the media. Well, if they'd had media uh, in those days. But that's the sort of situation. The more people are involved, the leakier it gets. And that conclave in 1549 to 50 was said to be more open than closed. And that the Emperor Charles V knew when they urinate in this conclave, so bad was it. Um, I've got another case actually from earlier in that century 
of a of an English cardinal, Christopher Bainbridge, who found a a novel means of breaking the seal of the conclave. Now, you remember that cardinals got their food through this turnstile mechanism. There was no common kitchen until 1878. And Bainbridge wanted to get a message out. So, he apparently scratched the names of a couple of cardinals who he thought were going to be elected on the bottom of his dinner plate and then sent it back out through the turnstile. Um, now, of course, these days, the challenges are so much greater. Um, there was a there was a case actually in the 1920s of uh, a cardinal who kept notes during uh, the conclave. I think he probably hit, then hit them up his sleeve and, and you know, it, it, it's probably terribly exciting for these people and maybe they want to keep a diary and, and write it all down afterwards that they're not supposed to divulge what happens. So this cardinal in the 1920s kept notes. Then he died and his relatives um, sold them off, sold them to a newspaper. So it was then decreed that any notes that were made during the conclave had to be burnt with the ballot papers. But these days, of course, um, we've got electronic problems. Um, in recent decades, there have been rules against bugging devices. Telephones, for instance, when those were first introduced, you could have phones that linked between the rooms or the cells of the cardinals, um, but you couldn't have any outside lines. And now the cardinals don't live in cells at all, they're, even though they're only in the conclave for a, a very short period of time in comparison to yesteryear. They have a purpose-built hotel within the Vatican grounds. And now you've got the problem of bussing the cardinals from this hotel-like building to the Sistine Chapel for the voting. So the security issues are somewhat different. So, And what exactly were the electoral procedures? Mm. Right. Well, these days, there's only one, and it involves ballot papers. Um, but in the past, there were a number of options. Of course, traditionally, there'd been election by acclamation, which for centuries you could still do in conclaves. But how do you police that sort of thing? But saying, we have one outstanding candidate and everyone says it must be him. But so the acclamation was allowed along with scrutiny or ballots. Um, and along with another method, compromise. And that was used in those circumstances when, you know, they, they were voting and voting and voting and didn't reach a conclusion. So a, an election by compromise involved the heads of rival parties going off to represent their parties and between them, they came to a decision. Now, there was a splendid case in 1316 when the, there, was there was an election by compromise or delegation and there was just one delegate. He went off into a side room or wherever these delegations went and he needed very little time to reach a decision for he returned and declared, I am the Pope. It was a perfectly valid, unanimous election. Now, on the matter of ballots and scrutinies, the rules have changed 
slightly over time. Um, for instance, numbers of ballots. Back in the 15th century, for example, we know that there was just one scrutiny a day. They now have two ballots a day. Many more electors, but two ballots. And the idea in moving to two ballots is that there is less time for electioneering, which you're not supposed to do, but you can do it on behalf of another candidate. There's less time for politicking between ballots. Also, the number of candidates that you can vote for on your ballot paper has changed. If we go back to, again, the 15th century, there's the case of in 1458 of Cardinal Latino Orsini, who hedged his bets by voting for seven people in one scrutiny. Now, he, his idea was that whoever was elected, he'd be well in with them, which is a smart idea. Um, it was more likely that people voted for two or three names at that stage. There was no first preference voting, a system that we're, we're getting used to these days, not in the church, obviously. And all those votes, whether it was for two, three or seven candidates, all carried equal weight. And some cardinals wrote no one on their ballot paper, which confused the issue again. So those rules have changed over time. We have ballot papers surviving from the 17th century, which have printed words on, um, I choose as supreme pontiff, but in Latin, my lord cardinal. So it suggests that in the 17th century, they were expected just to vote for cardinals. Now, there's no obligation to vote for a cardinal. Um, they, can, they can go way beyond if they have to. They don't tend to because that's pretty chaotic. Although if you've read the novel Hadrian VII, you can find out what, what happened or might happen um, if they do have to go beyond the sacred college itself. So that 17th century ballot paper says, I choose a supreme pontiff, my lord cardinal, dot, 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 and you fill in the gap. These days... Again, there is a, uh, a line I choose for Supreme Pope, dot, 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 uh, but it doesn't say my Lord Cardinal, anyone. Another change in recent years is that the option of voting for no one has gone as well. And when did the tradition of sending up the white smoke from the Sistine Chapel chimney um, when the new Pope's been elected, when did that begin? Ah, well, you said white smoke from the Sistine Chapel chimney. Now, so there you're wondering, did they do that before the Sistine Chapel was built? We think that they had written ballot papers as far back as the 13th century. Um, so the possibility of burning the ballot papers, because they don't survive, uh, is certainly there for that period. In 1417, when the election took place in Constance, um, there is a mention of ballot burning, but only suggest to suggest that it was an established practice by then. So we've got ballot burning, but smoke signals are a different matter. There's no mention of that until the 19th century. And that was in connection with the Quirinale, that other palace in Rome. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As recently as 1903, lack of smoke indicated a result because if the purpose of the burning was to destroy the evidence, to destroy the ballot papers, so that you know nobody knew who had voted for who, who had voted against the winning candidate. Um, oh, yes, and they had also to disguise their handwriting according to the rules written down in the 17th century. Um, but it, it, if there was no more ballots, there was a result. There was no more ballot burning. So lack of smoke indicated a result. In 1914, we get the first time when white smoke was taken to mean the end of a conclave after black smoke indicated failed ballots. Um, and then in the last conclave in 2005, they rang the bells um, of St. Peter's to dispel any doubt about whether you'd got white smoke or black smoke. So this white smoke, black smoke thing, which uh, can involve chemicals, um, that is a 20th century invention of tradition. Mm. And how is a new pope's name chosen? He can choose any name he likes. What's interesting is how it first started. It goes back to the 6th century when a priest called Mercurius was elected. He changed his name to John to avoid the papacy being polluted by a pagan name. But that's the very first case. It, it um, was pretty rare. The last pope to keep his own name was Marcello Cervini, um, Marcellus II in 1555, um, a pope who didn't last very long. The changing of the, uh, the name often involves the Saint's Day, perhaps the day of the, uh, the day the conclave started or the day the election actually com was completed. So that in 1417, um, Odone was elected on the feast of St. Martin, so he became Martin V. In 1471, um, Francesco della Rovere was uh, elected in a conclave that opened on the feast of Pope St. Sixtus II, so he became Sixtus IV, and so it could go on. Now, at the time of this recording, we don't know exactly which day this year's conclave is going to open, but if they do go in on the 15th of March, there could be a result two days later on the 17th. Will we be looking at Pope Patrick I? <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Um, and what would you say is your favourite conclave? Well, I'm most familiar with the 15th century. I love all the 15th century conclaves. I love looking at voting patterns in 1471, 70, uh, in 84 and 1492. That was the uh, conclave that elected Alexander VI, the second Borgia Pope. But actually, if I've got a favourite, it's possibly 1455, the conclave that elected the first Borgia Pope. 
We know about it because Pope Pius II was a conclavist, uh, an assistant in that uh, conclave, and he, in due course, wrote his memoirs. They are fascinating, hilarious in places, particularly because he couldn't stand Venetians, but even even more extreme were his attitudes towards the French. He took every opportunity to dish the dirt on his French counterparts. So, in his account of 1455, he declared that everyone wanted the papacy for himself, and there was a good deal of nocturnal lobbying in the privies. Now, 1455, you may recall, was just two years after the fall of Constantinople to the Turks, and there was considerable sympathy for the learned Greek exile, Cardinal Bessarion. Now, it looked at one stage as though Bessarion was going to be elected. And, and then a Breton cardinal stood up and declared, shall we then give the Latin church to a Greek pope? Bessarion has not shaved his beard, and shall he be our head? Behold the poverty of the Latin church, which cannot find a man worthy of the papacy without having recourse to the Greeks. They opted instead for the least likely candidate, the aged and infirm Catalan, Alfonso Borgia. And so one can say that Bessarion came quite literally within a whisker of being elected. That was Dr Stella Fletcher on the history of papal elections. Stella is currently working on a multi-period history of relations between the papacy and the British Isles. And that's almost all for this week. If you can't wait until our next episode for your history fix, then why not get hold of a copy of our March issue? Inside, you'll find articles about Henry V, Richard III, Nelson's Navy, the Industrial Revolution, Thomas Cromwell, and plenty more. You can find that in all good news agents and digitally. And as I mentioned earlier, if you visit historyextra.com forward slash digital, you can find out about all our digital editions. And of course, you can stay up to date with us on Twitter at History Extra and on Facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Next week, we really will be talking about Nelson and First World War internment, so do join us for that. The History Extra weekly podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.